Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney, here once again with our friend, freelance writer, John Bolding. Hey, y'all. We also welcome back freelance writer, and uh, apparently now the host of a <laughs> bitter rival strategy games podcast called No CB, uh, TJ Hafer. TJ, welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm just here to deliberately sabotage everything, because we're totally moving in on your turf. Well, it does feel like uh, at least <laughs> I can think of at least one CB uh, connected with that show's launch. Uh, anyway, we welcome back as well Games Beats Romance of the Three Kingdoms fan of the year, Rowan Kaiser. Hello, congratulations, <laughs> Rowan! You did it. Yes, finally, take that, Brian. Uh, so this year, the this, two nominated this, people. Uh, so this episode, we're going to be looking back at 2019, what our highlights were, how our feelings have evolved, and where we may have found the, the year wanting, uh, what we might be looking forward to next year. But I think to start us out, I wanted, you know how I love those definitional arguments, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I had a feeling heading into this awards season that Fi uh, Fire Emblem Three Houses was going to clean up for strategy game categories. I had a feeling uh -huh. it was just going to be a juggernaut when it came to uh, awards from like gen generalist outlets. And uh, certainly that was the case over with the, uh, the Keeleys, the Game Awards. And <laughs> I had weird feelings about that because it is absolutely one of my favorite experiences from this year, but it almost feels unfair to put it into a cage match with the other strategy games that came out this year. Uh, I don't know. I just, it, it didn't <laughs> sit well and I'm trying to work through, is this just me kind of being a weird definitional gatekeeper here? Or do I have like, is there a legitimate reason to think that's not the most apt category for it. It's kind of a weird place to put it that both maybe obscures its own achievements as well as those of some other great strategy games that came out this year. No, it's it's not. It's not weird. Um, I don't think it's just... It's not a game that belongs in strategy game categories, especially in generalist mm. awards like the Game Awards, because uh, it, it gets stuck, right? So, like, for me, putting Fire Emblem Three Houses in the strategy games category is like putting the Avengers in the sci-fi category at a movie awards, right? Um, it's going to win because no one watched the other movies nominated, yeah. right? Like, yeah. in an awards environment exactly. where everybody votes, everybody only play everyone who plays other games only played one strategy game this year, and it was Fire Emblem. Yeah, I mean, I would say that that's that's the main issue. Like, there's no problem with describing Fire Emblem as a strategy game, or at least as a tactics game that yeah. we happily put under our umbrella. But yeah, it's the that as soon as you put it over there, you're saying that you know it's going to win that, and it's not going to win the RPG category that it might fit in even a little bit better. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I also had an issue with this with IGN putting Slay the Spire as the best strategy game of the year. And, like, Slay, Slay the Spire is a monumental achievement. Um, but I say that's definitely an RPG. And, like, that should be going up against, I don't even know what the RPGs of the year were. Did any RPGs come out this year? <laughs> out of the uh, world? Not that I know of. Can't think uh, of one. No. <laughs> Quiet year. 
Yeah. Yeah, and you can hold me directly responsible for that because I actually voted in the IGN Games of the Year this year. So, I mean, if, I, if that's... I cast if, my Three Kingdoms votes to the wind knowing that they wouldn't really accomplish anything. Yeah, it like... mean nothing. Slate Aspire deserves awards, you know. Uh-huh. And Great Three game. Kingdoms deserves awards. Yeah. Uh, it's just, like, maybe these aren't quite the... Maybe these aren't quite the awards that we should be using in yeah. 2019. Like, a roguelike of the year award seems far more relevant for something yeah. like Slave Aspire. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think the way I put it on Twitter is that I think Fire Emblem Three Houses is a good game. And it's also a strategy game, but it's not a good strategy game. <laughs> the reasons <laughs> it's good it. have almost nothing to do with the fact that I would say, yeah, it's a strategy game, but I wouldn't rate it in that specific category as better than other strategy games that came out this year. Although, when you put it that way, like, to take that in maybe a non a way that's not, like, potentially gatekeeping on, you know, visual novel type of things... I would also say that same thing about something like Endless Legend, which we have praised a lot, but we're still not mm. sure if it's actually a good strategy game. But goddamn, it's a, it's a great experience. Uh, yeah, I think there's, uh, but at least I think there, where it is really interesting, is still recognizably part of the like. 4X genre and yeah. is inhabiting that space in a way that by the midway point of uh, Fire Emblem Three Houses, I badly wished like, you know, when, when new battles are popping and you just feel dread where it's just like, oh, <laughs> shit, I'm going to have to kill all these guys again. And it won't matter. It's just going to take <laughs> forever. It's going to be you just like wrecking house through this map. Uh that's kind of a problem. Like it, it ends up the the part of the game that makes it most directly relevant to the place where it's being considered, uh, is the part where it is weakest. But I, I do think Rowan, you're onto something here, which is that a lot of these awards systems from more mainstream places have this habit. And I understand why, uh, cause you want to have the same categories year after year after year. Um, and so you don't want to have, like, weird awards where there's only one entrant or, like, they're so niche that no one will give a shit. But I do think it's a bit of a problem uh, that you, you can end up with a situation where you are just collapsing really robust but, like, distinctive game archetypes into single categories and having them fight it out when, like, at the very least, it feels like there should be a tactics game of the year versus a strategy game of the year. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't seem sure. like there are so many games where it's like, take your squad or party and go solve this map. And there's so many games that are about like, Hey, go build an empire or build an empire or <laughs> yeah. manage or this factory. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like it, it feels like those two things should be recognized. Yeah. Like tactics is at the intersection of RPG and strategy. And that's great. We love that. Um, but it also means that it runs up against both sides in ways that are like sometimes bad for, you know, Fire Emblem probably deserved to be called RPG of the year as a game in and of itself. Like those were its strengths to, you know, putting it's combining its narrative and, uh, um, writing and uh how that combines with the gameplay and all that works in a way that makes it a really great rpg even if the 
tactical side of it is only okay. Um, that seems like an extremely valid place to put things. And then you have roguelikes that, you know, they're all over. They Everyone can make these little things, and some of those little things will blow up, like Slay the Spire did, at least critically. And, you know, I can make a very yeah. clear case that it's an RPG, but I have no problem with someone saying, like, this is a strategy game, I guess, if these are the categories we have. And, like, these things are huge now. Um, yeah. You know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have had a roguelike of the year, probably. But now those are some of the most interesting and popular games, especially on streaming. Um, but the really good news is that we don't actually have any sort of publication and someone would have to dig through our history like a whole hell of a lot in order to come up with our ideas and takes on these things. Well, so therefore we the can get as ni- podcasts that too, that too. So we can get as niche as we fucking want. <laughs> uh, I mean, before I, before we move on from Fire Emblem Three Houses, though, I think just so that I'm not just like sort of concerned trolling its placement, I, I the thing I I would draw attention to and and why it is relevant and important I think for people who care about strategy games to look at that game is one of the reasons I enjoy the genre at its best sometimes is it doesn't always just have to be like power fantasies or, you know, imperialist daydreams, right? It can also be a place to interrogate ideas about how history works, right? What, what drives history. Uh, and I think by those lights, Fire Emblem Three Houses ends up being a really important and relevant game for the strategy space. This is a game okay. that is entirely about, uh, how a political order collapses and gives rise to something else, right? How, uh, you know, what, what drives people into becoming, uh, ideologues, uh, what gets people, what are the various reasons that people end up following them or opposing them? And how does that cross cut across different identities and conceptions of the self? And, by that token, Fire Emblem is still like one of my games of the year. Probably, you know, I think I haven't written my list for, for Waypoint this year, but like if I'm, if I'm just saying like, here are my, my top games of the year, like must play. I think Fire Emblem Three Houses is in my top three. Um, and it's for those reasons. Yeah. yeah it, I think it, I had it, it number a- six on my overall for the year. It's about how stability goes down other than comets. <laughs> There's your segue, TJ. Oh, wait. No, you changed oh, that name. Are we? Are, are we <laughs> Sorry. That's, that's true. Do we do we want to do we want to do Paradox Corner uh, over here? Well, I mean, so, is there anything in that corner? I mean, there's Imperator, which is pretty big, uh, even if you're just talking about the discussion around it when it came out. Um, uh, there's not a lot else, though. This is actually the slowest year for DLC for Paradox since Crusader Kings came out. Um, it's the first year since EU4 came out that we have not gotten any DLC for EU4. I think there was like one for Hearts of Iron and one for Stellaris, and everything else got delayed into 2020, uh, except for like the free pack, the free mission pack that just came out for Imperator, um, which is interesting. I, w- I wasn't expecting that at all. And to be clear, this is Paradox Development Studio. Uh, Development Studio, yeah. Specifically the grand strategy stuff. Um, and, you know, it's it's hard to say, you know, they, they 
didn't do much this year because obviously they're working on big stuff and you know we got a new game um that then they turned around and remade the entire game because people didn't like it which is kind of becoming a, a paradox development studio uh staple at this point um but yeah, it was it was a it was definitely an interesting year, just in in kind of how slow their release cycle was, um, and uh, you know maybe maybe indicates that there's a shift going on in how they're going to run that part of their business. I don't know. Well, I feel like to take it macro, there's just a lot of transitional stuff this year, um, other mm-hmm. than like Fire Emblem and. Um, Total War Three Kingdoms. It felt, feels like everything else is kind of setting up for something else or finishing off what was before. Uh, and I have a little bit to talk about when we get to Total Warhammer on that. But just in general, like lots of games coming out in early access that seemed really interesting. Lots of games that, like, yeah. um, you know, after a couple expansions, these things are going to be great. But right now, they're pretty good. Uh, that just as a general thing, like that's kind of the way I view strategy games this year. And that's, that's cool. Like they can't all be 2012 with XCOM and Crusader Kings too. But uh, yeah, that this might make this, uh, this session a little more meandery because of that. Oh, civilization, like had an expansion at the start of the year. And then like, what are they doing? That seemed to be, yeah, if not a capstone to that, at least some sort of transition and what's going on over there. Did you want to talk about your podcast specifically? Here? Yeah, well, I, w- <laughs> I was going to say, if you guys want to hear uh, some more in-depth discussion of what's going on, specifically with Paradox Development Studio, maybe Grand Strategy more generally as we nail oh, wait, down oh, the format. Oh, wait, so it's not just uh, Paradox games, huh, TJ? Well, you know, we might talk a little bit about Civ or Total War every once in a while. Uh we're we're certainly not going to talk about wow. Old Man I feel War like games. Maria Theresa here, <laughs> uh, and and suddenly Frederick's like you know really uh, yeah. When I said Silesia, uh, <laughs> what I, what I really meant. Well, you know this is I mean three moves ahead. Did is I say like Silesia? F- I meant Saxony. Oh. <laughs> Three moves ahead is like the front page of the newspaper. You get, you know, the the overview. And then if you want to flip to like section 4A and read a thousand more words about the latest Hearts of Iron Dev diary, uh, that's that's what No CB, our, uh, our grand strategy podcast, is kind of about. Uh, we, we get really nitty gritty with every single thing that they talk about for any future DLC or patch. Um we do four paradox shows a month as opposed to you know maybe two or three a year. So it's uh we we owe a lot to three MA. I think I called it the 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 sort of parent podcast on our first episode. Um, but yeah, if you're as like into paradox games, paradox development studio games as uh, those of us who are are up in the thousands of hours played mark on uh, CK two or EU four or whatever, you might want to give it a listen. Uh, TJ, though, like, I am curious, uh-huh. more broadly here, was it a good year to be a Paradox fan? Like, I mean, you know, it's it's one thing to say, like, to a degree, the strength of 
living in evolving games isn't just measured in like what new products were released, right? Like right. it's in how games are evolving, how they're changing the direction that they're going, particularly with paradox games. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think we're going to be talking about Imperator, uh, soon. I'm not sure whether you'll hear it before or after the show, but, uh, right. we're, we're going to be talking about Imperator in light of the Livy update. Um, but like, did you feel overall that the games you care about were being well stewarded? Yeah, I mean I, I would say I would say overall it's been a pretty good year. Um I mean there were there were issues with Imperator at launch that I'm sure we'll talk about when we do the full show on on the the recent updates, so I don't want to get into that for too much of uh uh, too much of the airtime here. Um, but I feel like the fact that they released a brand new game, it looks great. It's got a lot of interesting ideas in it. People didn't like certain aspects of it, and they completely redid entire systems for a game that just came out. I mean, that's really not something a lot of developers will will do. Um, even the ones that It was have interesting kind of- to... Yeah. To see the game instead of just sort of getting written off as like, oh, that's too bad. The majority of the community didn't like this. Let's release some expansions improving on what is there and move on. It was interesting to see Paradox choose to sink a bunch of development time into simply redesigning things from the ground up. Yeah, I also I, I, I sort of look at that. Sorry, just my, my thought and reaction to that is, is just, I do wonder to what degree is that driven by you don't want to break Paradox players' expectations, right? You know, like, you never want to set the precedent that, like, a Paradox game is just going to be uh, abandoned, because that has never happened uh, before. Um, Not since much of the Eagles, R.I.P. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> we, we've all got our one here, right? Come on. Uh, where's but, our where's our so, post launch support for merch of the Eagles? But I also so, wonder if it being a Johan game and him being wanting to remake it has something to do with that too. Yeah. yeah. So in a sense, like the idea that there weren't many expansions for the the existing games, uh to people like us kind of might feel like a bad thing. People who are like fully engaged with the paradox rhythms of how they release and update things and also get codes um (laughs) but like there are a lot of people that when you talk to them about a new paradox game they're like well i'll play it when i'm well when it's finished and i'm like you know the only one that's been bad has been stellaris like and you know that's controversial but like you know crusader kings hearts of iron eu4 like all of those were really good at launch in certain ways they just got more and changed but the idea of having a year where it's like okay no these games are the way they are we are we feel pretty set with them and other people can like go on the steam sale and successfully say yes i want to buy eu4 and know that i am getting a game that isn't going to continue nickel and diming me, even if that's not actually accurate, like mentally they can, that's how it can seem sometimes. So yeah. even I've, I mean, I've heard that from people who are strategy game enthusiasts, right? Yeah. People who are like um, with paradox games is they're like, Oh, exciting. A new paradox game. I'll play it after the first expansion. And then I won't play it again for two years Buy the rest of the expansions and then play it again. That is a, I think that's a, common way to play a lot of their games yeah and so having a year where they get to consolidate is uh 
might look bad in some ways, but it's actually kind of good, I think, socially, because now you can say, yes, Crusader Kings 2 is done. Yeah. Have a blast. Well, and yet they took an entire I, year off and didn't kill the states. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I also think that the I like that they're they're giving some attention to tech debt, which is part of the reason they've said EU4 kind of went into uh went into the shop this year. Um is that you know, they have these older code bases that weren't necessarily ever intended to carry on as long and support as many features as they now do and i like the fact that they're recognizing that and they're saying okay we need to we need to just give everything a tune-up and that's not going to have a lot of visible exciting features that we could put a price tag on but it's going to help us a lot in the long run and we just need to hunker down and do it so tj you brought up um so, like, you brought up Total War, which I thought was interesting because the the first game you really wanted to talk about was not uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which for me was the only, like, for me, it was basically the only Total War thing that existed this year. Like, I was like, what a great year for Total War. <laughs> Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Just yes. the best shit. Uh, but to this theme of, like, games quietly evolving and getting better in the background, like, looking more and more like live games or games of service, um, you have followed Total Warhammer 2 um, almost as closely as Three Kingdoms this year. I have not, but Rowan has, who is, I think, who you're say- actually talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Close enough. Um, yeah, so <laughs> the last, like, big faction expansion for Total Warhammer 2 was last November. Um, that was the Zombie Pirates, I think. It, you know, mm-hmm. thank God for that. Um, but uh, the thing that has happened with total warhammer over this past year is that they have been releasing patches and little mini expansions where they add new legendary lords uh and these legendary lords they're like taking taking factions from one part of the world and putting them in another part of the world uh so like one of the ones they released in the summer was had a, an empire guy in lustria which is the main lizard man continent so you actually now have a playable faction for one of the old world groups and you can have, you know, your little knights and your little gunmen going and fighting the lizards and the zombies, then the pirate zombies and uh, the Skaven there in a way that wasn't really possible before. So what they've been doing is they've kind of been populating the map in interesting ways. The one they released a couple days ago, they put a dark elf into Skaven like way in the far southeast of the map. Um, so they would start running into like the dwarves and the orcs and stuff. Um, so that combined with like actually patching up how mortal empires, which is the mega campaign that combines both total Warhammer one and two together, they've made that like actually technically significantly easier to play, um, in a way that has all added up to now mortal empires is actually kind of the way that you should be excited to play total Warhammer as opposed to like a giant mess of a thing. That's what it was when it was released like two and a half years ago or whatever. Um, and it's, and they it's fixed wild the end too. turn times. Yes. Yeah. It, the end yeah, turn the times are work. so much better. <laughs> the, the technical work combined with the like addition of variety all over the map in like small, subtle, cheap ways uh, suddenly like 
it's no longer just this is a thing I wish I loved, but this is actually the game that I wanted when they said they were going to do this giant mega campaign for all of the Warhammer shit. And I don't know how Total Warhammer 3, if that's going to come, is going to affect all this, but I do see that like, oh, they have finally made this the the thing that they promised um, in a way that I might have thought was impossible, but they managed to do it. I I would have called it not impossible, but I would have said like that's something that won't happen, right? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just games, strat- strategy games. Strategy games don't get that kind of tech work done for them very often. It's rare, simply because it's really fucking hard. It's not easy to make games run that well. Um, and I'm very impressed with the work that Creative Assembly did there. It it's sort of remarkable, and it's a it's a for me it's a new standard in going back and re working your old material because you're going to keep releasing updates and expansions to it that you're interested in having people buy it is going and fixing fundamental tech problems with something inside your code somewhere deep in there that's hard to fix um and i was pretty like i'm i'll buy warhammer 3 you know what i'm ready to buy it simply because of the work that they were willing to put in to fix warhammer 2's mortal empires mode right that's exciting It makes me think like, cool, I want to see what they want to do when they're going to make another game. Uh, That combined with Three Kingdoms being fucking incredible. Yeah. Uh, The only other game I can think of that did something like this was Civilization V, I think, in the first expansion, though it might have been the second. But they tried to really make it so that they uh, had the between turn times go a lot faster and... I don't think it was as noticeable as this, but it was something that was like, oh, thank God they did this. Yeah, actually, CK2 and Hoi4 have both had uh, updates in the past that were just yeah. heavily focused on optimization. I mean, Hoi4 1.0 ran so freaking slow if you got past like 1943 that you just wanted to end the war before that. So, yeah. Well, so did Hitler, and you know how that turned out. <laughs> <laughs> and CK2 obviously has the famous one where they discovered that every Byzantine was trying to right. castrate or blind someone at every point, and they turned yeah, that uh-huh. they made that not quite so aggressive, and the game started running better. But yes, that's a that's a, a really good thing to see in like as you said, games that might have a tech debt. Yeah. I love the paradox discovered that like Benioff and Weiss were like hiding inside their code. Uh, basically. Uh, oh, man. Wait, why is sexual violence part of this game now? Uh, so, as far as Total War Three Kingdoms goes, I, I think the thing that not only did I love that as a game, I just loved it so much as a refresh of what Total War is and can be and how it tackles the ways that Total War games tend to sabotage themselves and, like, let players sabotage them. Um, I was sort of talking about this with trying to explain to the, the Waypoint gang about, like, why I liked this game so much. And the thing that really stuck out at me is every Total War game 
it's very easy to have your go-to tactics that you just hit again and again and again. Oh, do you like this this sort of set of units? Then there's nothing to stop you from just like using that as your army template and just using the same tactics and applying them to, like in the same ways again and again and just sort of rolling uh, in that way. I love that Three Kingdoms, because they introduced this idea, and I think in some ways the way it's introduced, the way it's communicated is a tad inelegant. Like the color coding and the general archetypes doesn't, entirely mesh to me with like what the various units are that the generals can actually recruit to their retinues but setting that aside that's that's my only that's not my only beef with it i love this notion that you can't have an army template that encompasses all the good units in the game you just can't do it. You you are going to have an army that is going to be a little bit min-maxed, depending on who the three commanders in that army are like are set to be. And you have lots of incentives to mix and match that as well. This idea that you know they're a bit um you know Lego-like in that there are lots of reasons why you might want to demobilize or splinter off a top general and set them out into their own stack and then build a new army around their retinue and have, you know, different unit rosters and synergies lining up there as well. Um, I love the fact that this is a total war game that sometimes you just end up with really unbalanced armies. And that feels great. Like, yeah. you, you, like you, you have a really powerful kick-ass army that is good at two things. Uh, shooting guys from a distance with arrows and riding dudes down with cavalry. Who's going to protect those archers? Have no fucking clue. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> a, li- a line yeah. of heroes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. Well, and it also, uh, I think we talked about this way back when we did the Three Kingdoms show, like it incentivizes, or not necessarily incentivizes, but it creates more situations where you have to make do with crap troops. Whereas in most Total War games, there's this power creep where eventually you just have elite death lords, you know, making up your entire 20 stack army. In Three Kingdoms, it's not quite as easy to do that all the time because you might have, you know your best generals are leading armies in separate areas and they have to have some second stringers supporting them or whatever that might not have access to higher tier troops, which, I mean, it feels even more historical, which, you know, isn't necessarily the goal of at least romance mode um, than most other Total Wars because it's like, yeah, I mean, a lot of being a good general throughout history has been knowing, you know, how to make do with non-ideal troops, you know, figuring out what to do with these peasants, how to not have them run away, you know, with first contact with the enemy or whatever. Whereas, you know, in even in a game like Total War Warhammer, you know, you get 50 turns in and you're not you're not really dealing with peasants anymore. You're just you've got the best troops that you can in every army and uh there's no real no real no real reason not to. Rowan, you got nothing on Three Kingdoms. I mean, I <laughs> didn't have a thing specifically about that aspect of it, but I can I can shift gears. Shift them. Let's this is this is the let us now praise Three Kingdoms <laughs> uh, section of the show. Uh so like going back to what we were talking about about games as experience, like that game is a fucking experience. Like, 
the aesthetics of it are just fantastic from the map to the music, to the sound, to the, you know, unit models and stuff. Like it's just a dream to look at and play at a level where like, when I was like helping do the, the games beat submissions for the game awards and who knows what we might do with it. I like put it down in all of the like technical and aesthetic categories because it just like, escalated what total war could do at that level um if you talk about things like uh what the map is like you know i've talked about my days as a modder for the original rome total war and what started to happen around the start of this decade was uh creative assembly would start doing these very specific unique maps that couldn't be modded like they had uh you know um specific aspects of them uh god i'm totally blanking on the word but it was like previous total war games early ones um were like legos as you said the you could like take a town here put it there put a bridge here put a river there so on the maps have been unique since napoleon or so maybe since rome too um which meant that you couldn't mod them. And I'm not sure that was the greatest thing. Like maybe by the time it hit Warhammer, it it was getting pretty good. But then when you get into what they did with that map of China and how gorgeous it looks in all of the four seasons, like it's like, Oh, now I see like, this is the full benefit of, uh, making that choice to maybe make your game a little more inflexible in the back so it can be prettier and more accessible to like more mentally accessible. People want to play it in the front. Like that's, that's a lot to say as someone who really, really liked those mods. I also think it is a really good example of introducing characters as meaningful agents uh, to mm-hmm. a strategy game that isn't necessarily built around that. And I think this might be the most graceful implementation I've seen of that idea. Like, since Crusader Kings 2 began inspiring all these games to try, to introduce, to try and introduce stuff like that. Like, to me, it really was night and day comparing, like, uh, Imperator to... Uh, three, uh, two, three kingdoms. It, because Imperator wanted me to care a great deal about these characters, but if you, if things were going well, it was really easy to not have to care about those carrier those characters, to not have to think about what the dynamics are going on inside inside their heads in, inside your empire nor did the game necessarily help you track all that stuff uh very elegantly whereas three kingdoms really did uh it it like it didn't totally bog you down in managing this stuff but you did get this sense of these are characters with waxing and waning relationships and they have different personalities and they want different things and that is going to drive action that is not just that is not just press this button to mollify this character and make them go away you could do that a little bit but like if you were doing that habitually you were going to be headed for problems and so like it never totally derailed my game but i always felt like i had to think a little bit about like what was going on in people's heads who were they getting along with who could i no longer trust yeah, and I felt like it didn't 
uh, intrude upon the gameplay or take the game to a point where it didn't feel like Total War anymore. It didn't feel like some kind of a role-playing game where I was managing my characters and their behaviors. Um, it integrated the personality traits and how you play with those personality traits and the narratives they generate into the overall story and experience of the strategy game and of building your armies. You were like, oh, I've got my guy here who is an archer, and therefore he's good at having these other archers with him, rather than a sort of um, more, I guess, just superficial layer of like personality traits and behaviors um, like Imperator had. Yeah, that goes and reinforces what the what the strengths of the narrative are. Like, if you go back to the story that we or the the podcast that we did on Three Kingdoms as a setting, even before this game came out, like the key thing is like these are you know these are superheroes. They have all of these connections with the, each other in the story, in the history, and then the sort of alternate stories and histories that you get in your Dynasty Warriors or you get in your random you know. Three Kingdoms inspired pieces of art. Um, like, you care. People who know the setting are going to care about Lu Bu and Zhang Fei and Zhu Hong and all of these other guys and women. Um, that the game reinforces that for the people who do care and it creates the groundwork, not super duper well for total newbies, but it gets to the point where um if you want to start engaging with that you really 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 can and that's you know that's what you want from an adaptation right yeah absolutely um and then sort of going along with that one of the, the at a strategic level beyond the aesthetics like one of the things that i loved most about this game was that it felt like the right kind of alternate history that you can get from a strategy game. Um, I, I've mentioned several times, I'm sure, uh, that I have kind of a rule of like, can you see an, the actual historical outcome come out of the, a game like this, uh, come out of the simulation? And the simulation in Three Kingdoms is so messy that it's like, yes, I could actually see this ending up in the three kingdoms as they came out and as they came to be, but all this crazy shit can happen in the way that is just a blast to play. Um, and that's like, it, it felt like that ideal mix of simulation and historicism or whatever that, uh, given that setting is really, really hard to do. And I think they nailed it. Yeah, I agree. I also loved, uh, you know, Roman. I think it was a sort of a one of the fun subplots this year that I that I recall from all of us playing that game was when you realized that the South of China is this developmental quagmire. Yeah, uh, that like yeah. again, it's just like all of us had this experience of watching these massive empires rise in the South and thinking like, well, that's the game. Like that's the that's half of China now under you know one flag, and then when you finally had a game move you in that direction, um, and you realize that there's an entirely different strategic dynamic depending on where you are situated on the strategic map, um, 
that was a that was a really cool thing because because I, I don't feel like geography has ever mattered that much in the or at least hasn't mattered that much in uh total war games we played in the last 10 years right like there's a yeah, very few yeah. places that are like this place has a gold mine and that's like kind of a, a money printer province but for the most part it's been just like if you just get territory and reinvest it that's really the curve like have well, you been able to set money aside and reinvest and in a lot of total war map design there would also just be like i take i take a province or i take a city and there's three direct straight line connections of some kind to other adjacent provinces, right? There wouldn't be interesting twists and turns or these provinces that are just out in the open, completely exposed to six other provinces all around them and everyone wants to take it. Yeah. Uh, the the map design, like going back to sort of what I said, like it really encourages that kind of dynamic strategic play that uh, – has often been missing like you go back to shogun 2 which was utterly fantastic but a lot of shogun 2 is figuring out where the choke points are and figuring out how much you need to bust through those choke points and uh when you go to three kingdoms like because the map is so chaotic and dynamic around you in terms of like who's rising and who's falling plus as john just said like parts of the map are uh significantly easier significantly harder to deal with that strategic consideration of like is this a safe province is this a province i have to defend is do i want to invest in this is this just going to get cut off is a lot different from most other total war games and a lot better and probably most strategy games also yeah well and it also creates like these really interesting hectic situations if you start most of the factions, unless you're going to be like Gong Sun San and go corner camp up in the uh, up in the northeast, uh, like most of the factions, like well into the mid game, you are defending like a 360 degree, uh, you know, potential hostile zone, whether that be through diplomacy or, you know, having actual forces fighting there, which, you know, like we said, with the amount of choke points in older Total War games wasn't really much of a thing. I mean, you could kind of like park some guys in a fort and kind of be okay. But yeah, just the nature of China and the geography of China, you're you're under attack a lot more often from a lot more directions, um which I thought just made the campaign feel more dynamic and interesting and challenging. Yeah, and going back to what Rob said, like it's not just that the south of the map is that developmental quagmire, but it's also that that makes it so that the game as it is right now feels like a very strong strategy game, but also that when they want to expand to the south, which they have, I think, straight up said they're doing a non-mon uh, expansion at some point, like, that will be there and might create, you know, a similar strategic set of decisions throughout all of China instead of, you know, the northern two-thirds, which is an exciting thing as opposed to like, a, Oh yeah, this is, this is something I'm just going to have to wait for. And the game's going to be half done until then. It's like they found an actual strategic solution to that business decision. Out of curiosity, is there a game that came out this year that any y'all put above like three kingdoms, as far as like strategy games, like must plays? No. That's a really interesting question. 
I mean, three houses in some ways, depending on the person who I'm talking to. Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, in general, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that anything else comes close to. It. I guess if we're including auto chess, that's its own. That's its own really interesting thing. But yeah, is there a yeah, game? But is the is there a game or a oxygen genre? not included? Yeah, is an incredibly good game. Um, Anno eighteen hundred is a really strong and interesting city builder management game. It's really hard I, to anyone who's like I like war games. I'm like. Three Kingdoms, yeah, absolutely, you need to play that. And anyone who I know, when they talk about strategy games, what they're talking about are, are real-time strategy games or, or turn-based war games and things like that. Yeah, for sure. But there's a whole strategy management side of things that Three Kingdoms doesn't address that well. Um, it It's not a be, an end-all, be-all game, I guess. No, no. I, I'm not saying, like... Yeah, it's not that it is an isn't end all be all, but I'm curious. Like for the folks gathered in this room, because we kind of we're, we're kind of generalists in some ways. Like I, I think for me, it's probably the game that is the was the biggest crowd pleaser, um, or at least or at least the crowd of one that is me uh, in terms of <laughs> the things I want from 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 strategy gaming uh, for for one of these games to to accomplish. Choose company, but but Rob's a crowd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I also, mean, I, I or, don't feel. Or you know, if the uh, question uh, that you're asking is, uh, is anyone going to argue about making that strategy game of the year? Like, no. I don't think yeah, that it's That's rough no, for I me. Mean, you know what? I, I would okay. argue about it because when I open it up, I didn't play as many hours of it as I did other games. Eh, I mean, that's not, that's not a bad metric, but it's not. I'm curious. The only like, metric. Yeah, what's what's the game, John? That's giving you pause. Like, is it is it Oxygen Not Included? It is Oxygen Not Included, and um, the other games I played a lot of hours of this year, I am looking at, and they're they're early access games. They're not finished games, so I, we can comfortably yeah. discount them for that reason. Um, yeah, if you want to break them up, they're part of this year, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I played. You know, uh, over a hundred hours of workers and resources Soviet Republic this year, <laughs> and um, everyone's sick. They're all laughing because they're sick of hearing me talk about it and post bulldozer memes. But I'm serious; it's a great game. I mean, I mean actually, I no, to, I don't right. feel like I need to check you have that out. said. I don't feel like you have said straight up this is a great game. Like when it came out, we were all interested in it, and you were the only one who pulled the trigger on actually playing it. But uh, it seemed like you were a little more skeptical of it in general, you know, nine months ago. But to go, to go a little broader here, like one of the things we noticed at the start of this year was there were just a shit ton of city builders, especially in early access. God, stuff. there were so many. Yeah. I played so many city builders this year. Yeah, so I played. Now is what? the John Boulding City Builder uh, uh, extravaganza time. Okay, so I, I, I mean, I played Workers and Resources Soviet Republic, which is a sort of um, obsessive dwarf fortress level detail game about running a command economy. Um, and if you really love producing the asphalt for your roads and not just plopping down roads on the map like I do, well, do I oh, have a yes. game for you? Um, yeah, this sounds great. <laughs> which I love, right? Like, I also love, like, I, a thing that I, I think is great about it is explaining to people on the forums who are like, why can't I produce asphalt and concrete ahead of time and have them ready to use? Well, because if you make those things, they just harden. <laughs> so. Oh my now, God. Can you, can, can you, 
Can you support the true and pure ideals of the permanent revolution, though? So, no. It, it's not a war game, right? <laughs> it's Does not Soviet have- Caesar. Le- Leo Trotsky, gone too soon. Peace out, my homie. You can you can build like a ten story tall statue of Lenin though. Uh, okay, well that's cool. If you John, can that. you also not do that? Is that allowed? <laughs> you can you can also not do that. Wow, that's Does a pretty free have, Soviet republic. Like ideological education, like you it, know what I mean. Like do you have does, to do you right? have to so mind like, the worker spirit of, of of your workforce. Yeah, you do. So there's a there's a whole escape factor in the game where if if you don't see the people's needs, they'll they'll flee the country. They'll escape to the west. They want blue jeans and Coca Cola. They do. They want blue jeans and Coca Cola. So if you don't build them communist blue jeans and make them communist Coca Cola and give them communist televisions, they'll leave. And it's funny. I love it's hilarious to me. Um, but it's a really interesting game for that reason. And you have to do stuff like they'll be unhappy because you knock down all the churches. So you need to like build a radio station <laughs> this, and put on radio programs about how churches suck <laughs> to convince them they don't want to go to church anymore. I'm just liking this more and more the more you talk about it. Um, and it just it has all these idiosyncratic little details. It has this great thing, and I have never seen this in a city builder. Maybe one of you has, but you know the thing we always complain about, or not complain about, everyone just makes jokes about it. It's such a running gag that you just knock down people's houses all the time in city builders, uh-huh. right? You just oh, yeah. build yeah. a fucking two-lane road through their house, and you're like, piss off, go find somewhere else to live, and they just vanish into the ether, that family of five or whatever. You can't do that in Soviet Republic. If there's Ooh. not somewhere for those people to go live, you just can't knock down that building. Hmm. Just not allowed to. Can I can I label them reactionaries first and then do it? (laughs) That's also not an option. Oh man! Well, that sounds pretty ahistorical. It it's oddly ahistorical in this way, but it is such this strange love letter made by someone who lived through it to the trains and buses and cars of communist era Eastern Europe, and it's a fascinating game for that reason. So I would say that the impressions city builders did have, you know. You would see the people leave and they would just like bail and population keeping your population high was an extremely important part of that game. But it was not like there was a negative effect beyond the population numbers and being sad that you see these homeless people running off. Sure. Uh, But yeah, the the idea that you just couldn't do that is uh, definitely the sort of thing that I'm interested in because like, as I've mentioned many times, like the idea of having a history within the the city is one of the things that I feel like is missing from most city builders. Well, and you yeah. also you also mentioned like people like losing their homes, like having lived in Denver and San Francisco. One of the weirdest things now that I think uh, is about anyone it. Anyone else losing TJ? Is it? Yeah, I just lost him. Yep. Yeah. What's that? TJ, your mic has been mm-hmm. acting a little strange for the last few minutes, or pr- perhaps yeah, he sounds internet. drunk as hell, right? Yeah, it's it's is been it? he's been auto tuned. Um. So what I, what I was saying was. Uh, yeah, that's that's another thing that that just kind of occurred to me when you were talking about people losing their homes and city builders. As someone who's lived in Denver and San Francisco, like it just occurred to me how weird it is that there isn't really a city builder that like deals with the issue of homelessness, which is one of the like major things that city governments seem to be concerned with in big metropolitan areas yeah, uh, yeah. these days. And you know, it could be you know an interesting not only teaching tool, but also strategic consideration that I don't think I've ever seen anyone really deal with before. 
I found it particularly fascinating um, that as a game, the game really emphasizes your people, the people who live in the country, keeping them happy, giving them what they need, and also keeping them like educated because you can do stuff like fail to educate your population and therefore the next generation doesn't know how to do the jobs you need them to do to keep your economy <laughs> running, right? You can end up with these gaps of technical knowledge if you're not careful. And it's really interesting stuff, the way what? that game in particular treats your people as a resource. And they could just become freelance writers. It'll be fine. <laughs> oh, oh, they could. Too close to they home. could do that. Too close to home. So, so where is this game in terms of uh, early access? It's a lot more finished than it was. Um, it definitely still has some frustrating bugs here and there. Um, it feels like a very oddly complete game if you're okay with like a slightly jank city builder. If that makes sense, like they're all yeah. slightly jank. They're all sl- yeah. I mean, it's not City Skylines level slick, but it doesn't suck. I'm sorry, <laughs> jank. Jank is not approved party vocabulary. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to report you guys. Uh, it's it's uh, char- yes. The the appropriate <laughs> term is character. Exactly. Character. Exactly. Yes. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I think I think City Skylines in some ways has gotten jankier, just as the delta between it and a plausible model of the city has yeah. continued to widen over the years. Like, when it released, I was like, yeah, this is all right. It compares really well to SimCity, and now I'm playing it, and I'm like, this is fucking cartoon town bullshit. I hate it. <laughs> well, have I got the game for you, my friend. No, I don't know, but see, I, I don't know if I'm ready to be like, oh, damn, I fucked up my road. The asphalt hardened, and now I can't spread it. Oh, man, I think, so I built Rob, a shitty road once in that game. Wanted like a highway across a mountain and i realized it was bad after i had already spent like a literal year of in-game time having people build this road like shuttled out as work crews on buses every day for a year and i was like we're just fucking stuck with this road now because we absolutely can't afford to try and just make a new one john rob lives in boston like he knows okay on the eve (laughs) of the climate crisis we built a big underground fucking highway (laughs) <laughs> that's like great you guys crushed that <laughs> you know but yeah this sounds like your dream game rob folk. don't don't yeah. don't pretend don't play coy with this yeah this got, is what you want you, it's yeah you got john it's like calling to mind the moment like they finished motherland <laughs> calls and somebody's like oh is this good <laughs> it's a big statue I, but is it good i don't know <laughs> I feel like every other time I've heard this game praised, it was with, like, a long list of qualifications, and now I feel like I just want to install it tonight. Uh, John, is it more interesting to you than uh, Oxygen Not Included? So that's really hard. Um, I think the thing about Oxygen Not Included is it's had much more time to become a polished game, um, and it is a really good game. It's a powerful management game, and... It cares about really interesting things and it asks you to care about science like air pressure and how that relates to your basic function of your little asteroid colony. Um, it is a game that is an impressive feat as a just a playable that is a finished playable game is sort of mind blowing to me oxygen not included because it has 
a really interesting and well-established aesthetic of what it is. It knows it's sort of this cartoony game about science. Um, and at the same time, it's got these goofy things and it knows where it's abstracting and where it chooses to abstract. It goes all in on that. It's like, yeah, your people are perfectly happy to mix dirt and water into a mushy bar machine and eat mushy bars. That's cool. Also, I am. You're really going to need to know how much nitrogen you can force into a square, uh, a cubic meter, because <laughs> if you don't, you've got a big problem. <laughs> I can't figure yeah. stuff out like that, so that's why I'm bad at that game. Ro- Rowan, what was your final feeling on that? Uh, John, was that the was that the show you slept through that we did? That was the show I slept through. Okay, yeah. So, uh, having played over 300 hours of oxygen, <laughs> not included. Uh, yeah, it, coming at it from like the less of the sciencey kind of way, which I am very impressed by, and uh, I do think that like what John was saying is largely true. Like, but playing it through the early access and like figuring it out as a kind of Rimworld or Dwarf Fortress type of thing, where I care about my people and want them to, you know, what developing them and developing the colony to be part of it. I feel like some of the changes they made toward the end of early access. And as they hit release, like just totally took out my motivation on that one. Um, the big thing was that, uh, they made it so that instead of your character's skills developing by practice, they made it so that you had to like pick which skill it was. So instead of just like having a digger who got better at digging, uh, now you had to go and select that you wanted them to continue being a digger. And it just, uh, it didn't really, it added a layer of micromanagement that I really didn't like. And in general, with any kind of game system, I really love the ones that involve like getting better by practice. Um, and taking that away is like a very weird early access thing where like I see what they were going for with it, but now I have to sit here and remember the version of my, of that game that I played that fit my desires more than the one that actually got released. That I find that really interesting. Um, that's an artifact of the early access development process. That is, yeah, I guess just a danger, right? You can play the earlier version and know that it was a game you liked more than whatever the final yeah. was. <clears throat> uh, did anyone feel that way when Slay the Spire finally came out? Everyone had this passionate love affair with like the the early access Slay the Spire. I didn't hear anything bad about the final release. It's just it it seemed like all the discourse was last year. Yeah, that's um I feel like Slay the Spire is sort of a I don't want to say a limited game, but like the level of commitment that you put into it is like there is a point where that spikes where you say I am all in on this game and I want to like obsessively make slay the spire my core form of video the game expertise point. yeah <laughs> um, and versus the one where it's like okay i feel like i have played this game sufficiently like i've beaten it with each each class a few different times i feel like i get what it's going for i really love what it's going for but it's not it's not the game i am going to make my perma game 
Um, and yeah, like that's the way I felt when I played it, like in the middle of last year was, okay, all right, I got this. It's fantastic. I love this design. Um, it is a fantastic way to have an RPG character progression idea without the traditional leveling up model. Um, but once I hit that point, it was like, all right, I'm done with this to a point where I feel satisfied and I love it. Uh, I will recommend it to literally everyone, but yeah, it's not a game that I'm going to go back. At least I didn't feel like it was a game that I was going to go back to and just sort of play casually repeatedly. Yeah, I feel like I I spent a lot of time early to mid-2018, I can't remember when it first came to my attention exactly, um, playing a lot of it. And then I think maybe unlike Ruin, I at that point only played it for like maybe 10 or 11 hours. And I was like, this is super good. And I'm excited to play it when they're done with it. Um, And then I came back to it right around when they released it. And so a lot of the interesting updates and rebalances they'd made to the original two classes and then the entire broken robot class that came into it were both surprises and delights to me. So I was just totally head over heels in love with it again when it came out this year. Though I still don't think it deserves to win a strategy award over Three Kingdoms. It's an RPG. Just going to twist the knife on that one. Part of the problem is still just that there's too many video games. Like, Total War Three Kingdoms is my game of the year, and I haven't played, like, I've played, like, maybe 90-something hours of it. Like, that's, and that seems like a lot, but it's not a lot for strategy games, especially when you compare it to how much I've played a Paradox games, and it's, yeah, it's there's, there's too many video games. Stop, stop making video games. <laughs> Alternately, keep making video games. Yeah, I can I see find that, that relationship. Argument. This was easier when video games were totally my stress relief and escape from problems. But ever since, like, they became associated with work and shit, uh, it's like way harder for me to just be like, ah, now to sink into this sweet oblivion for twelve hours. Uh, and now that's what TV is for. Oh God! Is this the Burnout Podcast now? No, it isn't. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. No, we're not. We're, no, it can't be the Burnout Podcast. Um, <laughs> but speaking of new ideas that rapidly were out there, welcome, uh, Rowan. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, Rowan, you mentioned earlier auto chess, and I'm curious: did you mean like? Ooh boy. The one game with auto chess in its title, or do you mean the genre? Like, is is the idea of an auto chess like one of your top like things of the year? Or is it specifically auto chess uh that is that is that is one of your top games of the year? Well, at this point, like I am I am pretty in on the team fight tactics as my preferred auto chesser of choice. Okay. Um but like if i'm telling the story of this year and want to talk about this because it actually like really was across the entire year like it came out on like january 7th or something um yeah you you have to start with the original one um but i think that over the course of the year you you've hit a point where within the last month or two is when you start seeing the the various like 
you know, Valve and Riot versions of auto chess saying, okay, we are making our, we are making our game distinctive from the other things that have come before. There are really clear differences at this point at a level beyond like, you know, the meta is different. No, right now there are actual aspects of the games where you can say, um, if you want this out of your auto chesser, I know there are people like calling them auto battlers, which is a very good name. I like it, but auto chesser is just more fun. Um, if you want like this form of accessibility or this kind of not necessarily narrative, but kind of character aspect to it, Dota Underlords is the one to go to. Or if you want like a certain level of strategic depth, um, I feel like, uh, Teamfight Tactics is where to go to, and like the original is still kicking, and it's not bad, but it it has sort of fallen behind the, those other two specifically. It has. And then there's it the Hearthstone one, the mobile development route, which really made it a very different game. Yeah, um, and like it it just sort of accented the things that it already was, uh, where the other two have been like, okay, we want to differentiate ourselves. Um, but like between that and the Hearthstone release, I think we're, we're hitting a point where it's like people have figured out what the auto battler can go into in its next form. Like what, what will be its Fortnite after we've had its player unknown battlegrounds, you know? Yeah. I think it's been fascinating though to watch because of how rapid development time has become to watch the iterative, iterative development of the auto battler as a genre happen, like I found that mod and wrote the news story for PC gamer in nearly the very beginning of this year, as it was like blowing up in the Dota community. And then within three months, it was spinning off into its own standalone game. Valve was making their own riot was making one. And it was clear that blizzard would have to make one eventually, right? Just to compete. That's what you have to do. I mean, come the fuck on blizzard. You had heroes auto chess, Right there, you canceled Heroes like a month before this happened. Like, this was your lifeline. It's People incredible. would have played the fuck out of a Blizzard auto chess. You attached yeah. it to Heroes of the Storm. It would have been amazing. But that might have appeared on the balance up. sheet for shareholders. Yeah. and uh, Appeared on the balance sheet for shareholders is a, a sweet game where you <laughs> reused all the models you had made over the past five years <laughs> in an auto True. battler. Yeah. True. Uh, yeah, I, you know, RIP Heroes of the Storm, but. Wait, is that game My... dead, dead, or did they just cease development? Uh, they're still kind of developing, but like. Okay. But it's not like I'm going to were... load the client and it's dead. It just doesn't, like, turn on. Yeah, no, it's like they just released a new character, but they've only released, like, five new characters across the year. Um, but uh it it's more that like they they canceled all the esports stuff which was sort of the uh this is where you can see blizzard wants to invest in this game they think it can become bigger than it is so when they cancel the esports stuff it's like okay this is going going to go into some level of decline and there's not really going to be a way out of that unless some miracle like heroes auto chess happens um yeah. Uh they also like have mentioned in jobs postings like you'll be res- like a community manager who like you'll be responsible for talking about some of our legacy games like StarCraft and Diablo 2 and Heroes of the Storm and it's like oh. Ooh. That's I don't know. I don't know if the StarCraft 2 another... gets active development still, so. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, it's sort of. Yeah, I, I think of. that's what I think it's going to put in that kind of limbo. Yeah. yeah. Um. <clears throat> speaking of like things that were just frustrated us or you know this like was there anything really frustrating or disappointing this year? Uh, like was there any game that you had high hopes for that you were like ah this is not what I was what I wanted? Am I going to say it or just someone you else? Do it. Say do it, it John. I'm going to was... say it. You go first, Rowan. Imperator, man. Brutal. That, that game just does not have a spark. It's just you go and conquer shit the game. Like every other recent Paradox release. And by recent, I mean this decade. Like there's something about it that says this is a thing that I want to play. Stellaris failed at it. But Stellaris had that idea of like the, you know, developing your, uh, your, your, empire's character and exploring and like having that altered as you like interact with the galaxy and in hearts of iron four it's how you how you manage your production in order to keep your military running uh in eu4 it's creating your like diplomatic uh diplomatic community and engaging with that and having your strengths when you want to use them and not being too weak when you could be weak. Uh, Crusader Kings 2, obviously you have the characters um, and Victoria 2, you have the class system. And Imperator, there's nothing, man. I just, I keep going back. I know TJ says these patches are way better and it's just, I click on a thing, I go to war and I win or I don't. And that's it. I don't know. I I really like you know Imperator as it stands, and we're gonna do a whole episode on it, so I can go into a lot of detail on why. Um, I know I was asking you on Discord earlier when you were saying you weren't quite so hot on it, how far along you'd gotten, because I think that they've kind of added an effective scaling um, internal tension. It's not quite the level of pressure that I would maybe want yet. Um, but as far as the bigger your nation gets, the higher your rank rises, the more important families you have, uh, and to the point where, you know, if you don't keep conquering stuff, there's not going to be enough offices to keep everyone happy. And eventually someone's going to want to start a civil war because if their family's pissed off that they're not represented enough in the government, um, the fact that they've kind of boiled it down to this smaller number of families, I, I really like how that works. Because you remember who they are, like if you, even if you don't remember who a specific character is, you're like, oh, he's from, you know, whatever family that's always causing trouble for me. Um, because they're a bunch of idiots, and I don't want to give them ministerial positions. Uh, you know, uh, the whole the the way they've changed the population system to make it more dynamic and less, you know, micromanagey. I think is great. It feels more like a living, breathing world. Um. Yeah, we'll we'll I'll get into a lot of that on, when we actually do a full episode on the most recent three patches. But I think it's even to the point now that I might say, I might say it's coming close to edging out EU four. I mean, CK two will always be my number what? one, but Imperator is getting pretty close to being my number two. Okay, Th- this is insane. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, like, I'm, just, I'm sorry. Like, All I hear is blood rushing in my ears. <laughs> Like we've we've been playing a multiplayer game of EU four like in the past couple yeah. of weeks. Well, EU four is like, an amazing that, game. It's an yes, amazing game. It's an game. amazing game. And I then I load up Imperator and I'm like, okay, um <laughs> do I sit here and wait until my aggressive expansion goes below forty to right click declare war again? Is that it? Is that all I'm waiting for here? 
Oh um, no, you you that you ignore aggressive expansion and yeah, I, I know. I'm just saying, like that is that is what I'm thinking of. Where when I go into the EU four, it's like, all right. Do I have the manpower to do this war? Is this going to be the right decision? How much will this backfire on me? has manpower. It has manpower. It's just not interesting. <laughs> it's That's exactly the, the same manpower system that EU4 has. What, what makes it interesting in one Because in EU4, you can lose. <laughs> it's Roger. 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 <laughs> uh, now, like to, to go back to what you were saying about how it escalates, maybe this is true. But uh-huh. paradox games like are usually most interesting at the start, and like they can still be interesting as they go. But you start a Crusader Kings game, and like you know all those like little brothers and cousins, and you know the Countess to the West who's just going to destroy you if you ever show any form of weakness. You start an EU four game, and like you know that if there is a couple decisions or a couple early wars that go wrong, that's the difference between you being a great power in five years or you being a great power in five hundred years. Uh, uh, when you go into Imperator, it's just a bunch of stuff that happens for 10 hours, for 20 hours. Like, I don't know. Uh, that's it. Maybe it's true what you're saying that it will become interesting once I've conquered all of Italy and moved into Greece and Africa. But that's a big difference for a Paradox game. And I don't think it's a positive one. I'm I'm open to well, my heart is open, TJ. But the, yeah. the gap between the the place you are pulling up to in your relationship with Imperator and where I am at okay. is very wide. Well, that's <laughs> fair. Um, that's and fair. I'm kind of like this is like somebody telling me that they really did just buy the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> And like this, like for real, they own it now. TJ, we expect this from Fraser for a rubber game. <laughs> well, here, like one of two no, things no. is going to happen: either either history will bear me out, or it'll be another Stellaris situation where three years later I'm just lying awake in bed and I go, "God damn it, Rowan is right." Good. This is, <laughs> like, this one is good. of those two things will happen. <laughs> uh, okay, John, was Imperator what you were going to say? No. Hell yeah. All right. Give it to me straight. At the gates. <laughs> oh. Oh, shit. I had not thought oh, about no. that one. Oh, no. I mean, there's nothing else to say, but. Yeah. Oh. Was, we wish it was better, but. It's just not really yeah. a game. It's really quite sad. It's got a lot of brilliant ideas that aren't there, but. It's the game equivalent of someone describing to you their really good idea for a game. That's all it is. Yeah. Is it just that, like, it feels like the game isn't playing itself well? The game's not playing itself. There's not <laughs> an AI. All, there's I've not heard, but, yeah. opponents, effectively. It's, it's not much of a game. Yeah. I liked... Uh, yeah, the, uh, there are some really good ideas there. Um, the way it forces you to move along this idea that resources are depletable and of like you'll have to mosey um if you keep harvesting the same resources uh in your er- area uh again and again sure. that stuff yeah that stuff's good um but yeah it doesn't doesn't add up to a very compelling game um i thought you were going to say so- phoenix point 
No, I, See, but that's on my list. You want my, you want my further list of disappointing <laughs> games? This was a year of disappointments for me. Yeah, I had a completely different well, answer from any of those three, which is Civ, Civ Six: Gathering Storm. But I was actually going to bring up Civ Six because it seems like, at some level, the 4X genre has kind of gotten so complicated that maybe they should just be making city builders where you don't have an AI to worry about. I I felt like the last two expansions for Civ Six conceptually were like things I would have pitched as Civilization expansions. But the implementation ended up being so superficial, uh, whether you look at the Golden Ages and the Dark Ages from Rise and Fall or kind of the endgame climate change stuff in in um, Gathering Storm that like ultimately neither of them really had very long legs for me. I, I was planning on revisiting Civ 6 pretty soon because I did upgrade my PC and would like to play on larger maps. Um, but yeah, there's... I think the way that I've come down to thinking about it is that, um, so one of the most important decisions for like creating strategy games as they are was like this totally random thing from Civ 4 beta testing where they had it so that the beta testers could see what, uh, <coughs> like, what your relationship to AI was when you were negotiating with them, right? Um, so you like hover over the thing that says like negative six relationship and you see, oh, I have a city too close to them, but we're the same religion, but all those things. And they were like, oh, we wanted you to have this so you could understand how this worked. But when they turned it off, the beta testers were like, no, fuck that. We really want that. And they put that into civilization and that i i think that's one of the most important decisions for like the current flowering of strategy games is this idea of uh being really transparent about how things work but it's sort of gotten to this point with civilization five and especially six where they seem to want everything to be like this little math problem and at a certain level it becomes like so mechanical in how you go about it which like climate change becoming this mechanical problem to solve as opposed to this overwhelming attack on what you were doing um and like the the dark ages and the the golden ages being somewhat similar like civilization seems to have like crawled into this very specific like you should be able to min max every part of this that is not actually all that appealing when you comes down to sitting down and saying this is what i want to play yeah well and it's it's uh it's similar to a comment i heard recently from henrik Ferreus about crusader kings 3 where they weren't the the one of the things they decided not to keep from ck2's expansions was the black plague mechanics because it's quote just something bad that happens to you and i feel like well, that can create some interesting situations, though. Like, I kind of like yeah. strategy games where something bad can just happen to you. I know it doesn't feel good if you're trying to, like, optimize and min-max and you're, you know, that kind of player. Maybe give them an option to turn it off. But I kind of like games where just bad things can happen to you. And it's like, all right, you just have to roll with it now. You know, this is this is your life now. Yeah, to go back to Total Warhammer... Um... One of the things I loved about the Total Warhammer 1 campaign 
was that chaos would come as you were like hitting a point where you were developing and colonizing and you'd have like six or seven provinces and chaos would come and they would just destroy like half of that. And for yeah. the rest of the game, you would be dealing with like three or four provinces and it really helped you avoid like the game feeling excessively bloated and this is a thing that like i would say that's the third major step that mortal empires needs to take is to have that chaos invasion really be interesting strategically in that same way to have that bad thing happen to everybody uh in an interesting way for making strategic decisions and also limiting uh you know how you are able to how you are forced to micromanage um so yeah i i totally on board with bad things happening and i know that there are a lot of strategy game designers like it's not only henrik i think that's why johan has said that they're probably not going to go into the imperial age for imperator is that like they don't want to have it be a slow collapse but i'm like slow collapse that's the fun part though yeah i mean look at i mean frostpunk is a strategy game that's basically based around the idea that bad things are going to keep happening to you and you just have to figure out invasion best yeah. roman total war games i'm like yeah i totally agree yeah i mean i loved frostpunk specifically because i was like yeah look at my amazing settlement we're super self-sufficient we'll all never die and i was wrong <laughs> and that no, was great not. or something like they are billions which takes the rts and makes it you know seem viable again because it's a horde mode and not a you know economic conflict where you just go and kick the shit out of somebody because you have more troops like it's you're just going to have to defend yourself and something's going to go wrong yeah um so i think probably my disappointment of the year is probably steel division 2 um wow okay and no that's totally fair though part of that is part of that is probably just my disappointment in what we've learned about how Eugen has operated with its employees um, and just like how that studio seemed to handle internal um, uh, criticism and disputes over pay really, really poorly and uh, really, really pettily. Uh, but even, but that stuff shows up in the game too, right? It's not just that we learned, oh, the conditions under which this awesome thing was made weren't great. The thing that released was not awesome. I just did not, I did not care at all for its campaign structure. Uh, I saw the ambition, but that campaign was just not fun. Um, yeah, it was I, very you know, poor. I just, I can't get to what Ian, uh, or Tim Stone over at RPS saw in in, in that single player, um, the multiplayer like could be good and chaotic and and really gloriously kinetic, but that's not really new for Eugen, right? We know they can make beautiful, uh, really spectacular like multiplayer RTSs. Uh, what I was really hoping for this one was going to be an interesting take on like the RTS campaign. And at launch, at least, it didn't. It didn't really pull that off for me. Now, the weird caveat I have to this is that <clears throat> they do appear to be sort of clawing their way back with that one too. Um, the new patches that came out, like I don't know if you y'all followed, they introduced like smart unit orders. 
like units will now operate sensibly with a degree of autonomy. You can set artillery that, yeah. to automatically counter battery in that game. Interesting. Um, Swoon. Yeah, dude. Like, so I was playing around with it, and it is truly a game changer uh, because there's just so like, and I understand there's going to be folks who like. Having those control groups for your for your artillery units and microing them all—that's part of the skill ceiling. But that ain't me. That ain't my life. I want to. <laughs> I want to be, uh, you know, commanding a glorious, uh, you know, mechanized battalion in World War II. And I do not want to be sweating what every individual, you know, 80, 81 millimeter mortar is doing at any given, yeah. at any given moment. So having these features show up where like you can set artillery to auto counter battery or to automatically like target, uh, targets of opportunity and fire at will, or you can have it set to, uh, hit anything that pops up in this area, uh, around the zone. So you can basically task artillery to support infantry holding a position and the artillery will just hold its fire until it, basically see something threatening that position and then it will open fire that turns out to be enough off your your managerial hands to enable that game to begin to sing and <clears throat> so you know maybe you know on a long enough timeline steel division 2 will end up being a interesting good RTS certainly it as a multiplayer game, you know, we played a bunch of it, uh, you know, in the, you know, in the, in the, in the 3MA group this year. And it was one of the reliable crowd pleasers. I think once it stops punching you in the gut, and th that's what these patches appear to, to be doing, uh, there, there's a good World War II real-time tactics game uh, under there. And I think they've, they've made some real strides to getting there here at the end of the year. Um, but, you know, for, for a good six months there, this was just... I found playing that, that launch version, uh, particularly the single player, where they where they'd obviously put so much effort, I found it shockingly joyless. Um, and it, just the, that, just the that way was... that campaign worked sucked. It well, sounds to me like, like they should just—they should just replace the single player with workers and resources Soviet Republic. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. So, so it, like going along with the business stuff, in addition to the the uh, worker treatment that they had, like they also went off of paradox, which seemed weird. I don't—I don't have any inside information. I'm not trying to like say that anyone should. There's anything nefarious there. It just seemed weird to me that like Paradox was very excited to have Eugen for Steel Division One, and then like a year later, fourteen months later, they're doing Steel Division Two on their own, kind of out of nowhere. Um, <clears throat> and that that also leads me to wonder, like, why are they doing a Steel Division Two instead of more Steel Division expansions? Like, could they have done, you know, Steel Division Italy that would have attached to the existing game that they had? Uh, just a whole bunch of weird questions about like why that game existed and the the answer that they had for it like implicitly in their PR was because the single player campaign is the thing that's going to make this really sing and it doesn't seem like it did um, 
but like you know we we love that steel division core initially like the the tactical element of it but you know to go back to our issues with ultimate general civil war when you try and attach a campaign to a tactics game sometimes that can backfire a little bit yeah that's absolutely true it's a really similar situation i think actually to ultimate general civil war where it's a great tactics game but maybe they should have just stuck to giving us historical scenarios with uh variable outcomes rather than trying to build a an yep. elaborate campaign around I- it Dude, I think I would so much have rather received Ultimate General Antietam and yeah. Ultimate General like Chickamauga oh, than yeah. Ultimate General Civil War. Like those and those scenarios were good, right? Those battle scenarios were good, but they were clearly like abridged readers digest versions of the battles. And the ver- the thing I want to play is the oh no, dude, like you're going to control every single regiment that fights over this patch of, you know, over over these three fields. I'd be like, hell yeah, this is going to be great. Yeah. This is a great franchise. And instead they Multiplayer. were like, uh-oh, look out for these armored trains taking over <laughs> Harper's Ferry oh, in 1861. Uh, multiplayer would have been nice, too. Just, just tossing that out there. I just thought of that right now. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> Yeah. Ultimate general steampunk fan fiction. It was such a weird way to Especially if especially if you think about how to, like Tomatis' posting history at the Warhammer forums. And then he makes a game where you're basically setting up AT guns to shoot the <laughs> the, the armored land tank uh the, <laughs> the, the Confederates are using in eighteen sixty one. Uh oh. Yeah. Um, so, do you want to segue to a preferred World War II game, Rob? Very good. Yeah, I was. I was gonna say. Speaking of trips to Italy, <laughs> uh, you know who did do Italy well? Unity Command Two. What a what a beautiful game! I just thought it was so good. Yeah. So you uh you didn't sleep through that one. I just never told you it was happening. That's also true. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, again, sometimes we just have to ostracize people uh, randomly here through the head. And that day it was your turn. Got to keep uh, everybody in line. Yeah, just just ghosted you uh, at that show. You'd made a point of saying, I really love this game and want to talk about it. And I was like, great. Uh, so Luke and Troy, uh, <laughs> four o'clock on Tuesday. Uh, John. This was a game you were really excited about. Uh, it, where did you come down on it, and why? Well, that, well, that's the thing. I um, I wasn't excited about it. I actually, I barely knew it was coming out. Um, and then when it hit, I just happened to be in line to review it. I guess right, like I just sort of right place, right time. I was like, oh, cool, Unity of Command Two is going to happen. I can. I mean, I really liked the first one, but I can barely remember it. I'm excited to see what they'll have changed. And then they roll out this beautiful, full featured war game, expanding upon their sort of simplistic, puzzly combat from the first game, and it blew me away. I was so pleased. The AI was quite good. It's not perfect, but it functions. Um, there's some frustrations with a bit of the campaign design, some bugs in there, but overall, it's this really satisfying scenario-driven uh, game about World War II that gets uh, 
gets supply right in an interesting way, which is hard, and it gets combat right in an interesting way, which is really hard. And I just overall found it very satisfying to maneuver my units, flank the enemy, find holes in their line, break those holes when I couldn't find them, and do interesting stuff. Like, I haven't played a game where I felt really good about deploying pontoon bridges in a long time, but man, <laughs> I really got that thrill from, from Unity Command 2. What, what is the last game? I can't remember, you know? It's been so long since I've just laid out a really good pontoon bridge. <laughs> Love a pontoon. Love a But yeah, like as far as hardcore strategy games goes, that's that's my game of the year. Rowan, did you manage to play it in that one? I did not manage to, so this is all yeah. you two, I think. No, it's Yeah, I I'm with you. Um see I did but the difference is I did come into it with uh No, I guess it'd be wrong to say ridiculously high hopes. I came in with high uh apprehensions because I did feel the first game had been kind of above reproach and I didn't see how the changes they were teasing with the second game were going to be improvements. Um, but I was, I was really pleasantly surprised at, at how well it, it all ended up working out. Um, it is a, and it, and it did feel like I wasn't being really discouraged or demoralized by the fact I wasn't perfectly solving the puzzles. Uh, it felt like, no, scenarios are possibility spaces. They are not just puzzles. Um, these are still places where I can have my version of this battle play out, and that will be fun um, and rewarding, and it won't feel like I just missed the obvious path uh, that I was supposed to go down. So, yeah, I, I really liked it. Um, it was definitely a highlight for me. Um, and it would, if we were doing, if it was thrown into a list with just general tactics games, uh, I think it would be fighting, you know, for, for a podium spot, uh, as far as war games go, uh, certainly it was the, you know, probably, probably the favorite one I got into, uh, this year is sort of the perfect scale of uh of what I could get into. Uh any other any other games that you feel would be really remiss uh not to discuss uh today as as we wind down here. Well, I feel like uh well Planetfall is one although I didn't play too much of it but I was excited by what I did, but for me the one that I wanted to mention was one that we uh kind of bumped last year mm -hmm. uh which is Mutant Year 0. Yeah, which which is very much an RPG, like even more than Fire Emblem, I would say, but it fits in the like post XCOM tactical RPG uh, zone or whatever. That it just had. It seemed like kind of a ridiculous premise, and maybe it's because I'm not into like tabletop RPGs and I don't know about the Mutant Year Zero world. To, to but, be fair, know, like it's a weird world that was considered strange in the 80s when it came out so i don't okay. think you need to like feel weird for being like i'm just not into the talking duck thing like, yeah you just it, have it, to understand how much scandinavians love the old ducktales cartoon and donald duck before you can even begin <laughs> to understand why there's talking ducks in near zero yeah it, it just feels like this this sort of weird thing that was like oh i guess this is a tactics game that 
uh, I might be interested in. And then, like, it's got the, uh, what's his name? Ragnar Tornquist Company. Uh, uh, all their, like, narrative strengths to well not all of them this isn't this isn't exactly the longest journey in tactics but it's got a whole bunch of narrative strength to it the tactic element is maybe a little bit over difficult but it in usually in interesting ways where uh it's sort of a mix between solving puzzles when you get into combat and like dealing with bullshit as it happens to you um and just a really solid tactical RPG in a way that is like, if people are like, Oh, I'm getting into this genre. I just played Mario versus Rabbids. What am I going to do next? I'm like, very clear option right here. Uh, this game has that, that kind of narrative thrust with, uh, interesting tactical and RPG decisions. Um, yeah, just extremely solid. Yeah, that is still, um, I like it's, it's still holding on to a spot on my list of favorite games like released in the last year. Um, <laughs> it is, which for for a game re- released last December to still be sort of resonating that much a year later, right? Because because the, the joke is like we always say, ah, here's the eligibility period, but like nobody remembers like past six months, right? The recency yeah. bias in these things is huge. Everyone's guilty of this. Mutant Year Zero was one I was like, oh, don't forget about this one, and I never did. Like for the for the entire year, I was like, yeah, that remains one of the w- one of the coolest uh, takes on this on this style of tactics game and RPG uh, that I've seen seen recently. And actually, to talk about tactics a little bit broader, because I'm not sure there'll be a better spot for it here. But like, this seemed to be the year where the post darkest dungeon genre like really flowered. And it was not actually all that great. Uh, we got a bunch of like Darkest Dungeon wannabes or, you know, in that vein, like Warsaw and Mistover and uh, Vambrace. And like, I love Darkest Dungeon. I've put hundreds of hours into it. I was really excited for a lot of these. And there's just something that's kind of a little teensy bit off in a way that I'm still trying to figure out how to put my finger on it. Uh for the kind of roguelike versions of these intricate tactics XCOM style games, whereas something like Mutant Year Zero that goes for the the embedded narrative and the embedded characters was like, yep, this is just a fun thing to play and I'm very excited to have it. Yeah, I also want to shout out Planet Zoo real quick because I feel like the show we did on that when I listened back to it, we were like really down on the game. And honestly, I really, I liked Planet Zoo a lot. I mean, we had, we had Bruno Diaz on who really like disliked it a lot more than I did. And, you know, there's always kind of this, this hosting consideration of like, yeah, I, I, I want to let the guests have their say and not, you know, necessarily start a big argument about it. Um, but I, I feel like I liked it more. But then weeks later, you come back and you're like, fuck that guy. <laughs> Man. <laughs> I, well, I feel like I, I didn't stand up for it as much as I maybe would have liked to, because I really do like Planet Zoo. Like, I'm still kind of playing it off and on. I think that the uh, the economic simulation, when you're playing offline without the online market collapse feral warthog thing, uh, <laughs> is a lot of fun. I, th- I think the, it, the management aspects of it are interesting. Uh, I like looking at the animals. I like the freeform terrain editor um i had a lot of fun with that one this year that and planet coaster are games that i feel like 
I won't have as much time to ever go back to them as I would kind of like to um, because the, the, there are too many video games and the release cycle keeps on churning. But uh, yeah, I really liked Planet Zoo. Uh, John, anything for you that was, uh, you know, that, that's you're like, hey, don't forget about this one. Uh, yeah, I, so I, I think I have two real quick, right? So Battlefleet Gothic Armada 2 came out this year. It did um, not. It did too. <laughs> yeah, we skipped no. it. No. We all like, forgot about it. Like, that's not real. I, yeah, like, the Troy whole, said it's it, been 2019 it like for 10 years. <laughs> the whole, it was no. like 2017. My dude. <laughs> We've lost we've lost our memories, I think. January twenty fourth, twenty nineteen. How about that? Damn. Oh. Um anyways, that was a pretty good game. In the same way that the first one was good, it just had more spaceships, and that's really fucking hard to complain about, right? Like there's two ways to do a sequel, which is be new and interesting and iterative, and the other one, which is overwhelmingly multiply the amount of content in the game which is what they chose to do with armada 2 um they went from like what like four or five factions to like nine just like an overwhelming amount um it was a cool game it was satisfying i didn't play nearly as much of it as i wanted to uh that was that was fun and it just came out so we'll probably end up talking about it more next year but transport fever 2 just came out um which has a lot to a lot to recommend it so far so that's one to keep an eye on as you're moving into next year or if you really need to build trains (laughs) (laughs) yeah we we will definitely be keeping our eye on transport fever too i swear to god you were gonna say phoenix point but uh no i i don't know at this point if there's much that can save phoenix point (laughs) uh i mm. hold on i just i love this so much I have to pull this up because we know our friend Dan Stapleton loves him. The XComs loves him. Mm -hmm. The OG Julian Gollop Gollop experiences. Yeah. Uh I knew this game was fucked when I read Dan's (laughs) opening to his review. As far as I'm concerned, the more takes on the classic XCOM formula of battling alien invasions on both a tactical and global scale, the merrier. (laughs) <laughs> if that's if you got Dan fucking Stapleton being like, man, what a great premise for a game. You know, I got nothing against him for for Phoenix Point. I'm like, rut row. Oh, oh that's brutal. Uh, oh man, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, it's. I I think we'll we'll see how it develops, right? Like, uh, you know, we talked about it on the show with Paul Dean. Um, if they can get some sort of interesting opponent behavior in that game, it seems like that would go a long, a long way. Uh, again, sort of the general uh, AI improvements, absolutely. Yeah, the it's tough to tell what's there when when the game can't really play itself, and that's and that's tricky. But one of the frustrating things about modern game design is sometimes it's a a crapshoot whether or not whether or not the ai actually can grasp in a compelling way all the possibilities that a set of mechanics uh includes and 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 use them effectively and famous point just couldn't um yeah so 
I don't know. Hopefully, uh, hopefully there'll be reason to revisit that, uh, you know, in in the coming year. I guess I'm trying to think. If there's anything else that I think deserves a look? I, I think you were praising Anno, and we didn't touch that at all. Anno 1800 was fun. Yeah, that was a game. <laughs> it was a hell of a year. So many are just coming out every year now. I feel like I feel like every year for the last three years, I've said, "Wow, so many games came out." And I, uh, too many video games. It's truer and truer. I think Gladius is a good one. The, the Warhammer, uh, not quite 4X. Yeah. I think it's a good example of like the the exact sort of game that gets lost in the shuffle. It's yeah. not going to stand out on a list like this. Like compared to the other games we've talked about, I'm not saying like, hey, don't play those, play Gladius. Yeah. But it's better than you think. It's better than it has a right to be for a game that's so narrow in scope in, in some ways. It does a good job of like, Oh yeah, this feels like a this feels like the strategy game equivalent of like a full on Warhammer 40k adventure uh happening on some random planet. That was that that was cool. I think it's it's worth taking a look. Um and it's 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 the exact sort of game that gets that gets overlooked like this. Though this is coming from a guy who literally had no recollection of Battlefleet Gothic Armada 2 coming out this year. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't That's think Radius actually did. I think it was last summer, but there was an expansion this year that was what made us actually finally cover it because we all kind of liked it and finally just said, oh, yeah, we should do a show on it. Um, it reminds me of the Warlock games that Paradox did earlier this decade. The sort yeah. of... Uh, civilization but if it's just a war game yeah uh and that's actually a really good model especially because civilization has become increasingly intricate on how it models that kind of thing so you're able to transport it to other kinds of uh settings without losing too much of the like aesthetic power and adding more of the war game aspect yeah it's it's almost like we need a word for like a, this this class of games that in this like oversaturated world are like this is a perfectly good game, but I'm probably never gonna touch it or think about it ever again. And like back in the day, like in the '90s, where you you didn't have a lot of games, maybe that would have been like the main game you played for that year if that had come out at that point. But it's like you just don't have time for it or mental room for it. It's called the the job that you have now that I had that Rob had with IGN. <laughs> yeah that's, i mean that's fairly oh accurate. man that is a quintessential ign strategy guy game yeah yes that's, yeah that's true or or it's a 28 hour work week game uh, oh, there you go you know like yeah. is that these these are the world enough in time uh games uh and so no, sorry, we need to sell the revolution on better marriage than that. It can't be, come comrades, <laughs> to the barricades, we must make time for Gladius. Yes. I mean, yeah. Right, but I had to uninstall Gladius unplayed earlier this month, so maybe we should put the bourgeoisie up against the wall for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to find time for games. Um, like, Maybe if I get 50 more emails about my Narcos Rise of the Cartels code, um, you know, I will eventually get get around to playing that. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, 
So, so my game that I wasn't able to play that I really want to. Yeah. Uh, and I mentioned this as one that we should definitely talk about is Planetfall. Like I, I played the tutorial levels of it and I was like, Oh, I see where they're going. And then I listened to the 3MA that y'all did and I was like, Oh, they're actually going there successfully. And I just have not been able to get back to it. And I, I very much do because it seems like, uh, like a, a half step above Gladius as like a, a, interesting kind of wargamey 4x but a little bit more ambitious but without going into being like fully civilization in space i think it's more than a half step is the funny thing like i think there's so much more going on with like the unit interactions um i'm really curious what you make of it uh it just seemed, for whatever reason, the tactics layer worked better for me than any other Age of Wonders game, uh, just because it seemed so variable in what can happen. Uh, the ways units interact with each other was was so surprising. Um, I don't know that I was as compelled by the strategic layer, and that is always tough when you're making these games where it's split between battles and strategy. Yeah. Like the strategy layer is fine. It was serviceable. The battles were way more interesting, but if they're always in the context of a somewhat, a somewhat grating sci-fi story. And ultimately I think as I've gotten distance from it, that's how I find the tenor. Um, I really don't like a doc, like any, any game that's like, huh, here's, here's the doctor disrespect character. There's going to be part of me. It's like, get fucked. I don't yeah. want that shit. It's not, it's not even, it's not even that it's doctor disrespect, right? It's just that like, when games are self-referencing online meme culture or the YouTube creator networks that they badly want to showcase their game, like that is the marketing department fucking with my experience to achieve their own ends in a really obvious way that gets under my skin. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, well, like what I picked out from the the initial tutorials that like this is a pretty interesting a very specific science fiction universe of like, you know, the collapsed empire and the people moving in to try to figure out what to do after that has collapsed, yeah. which is, you know, you're into the battle tech. You, you know, that this is a, the sort of thing that has a lot of appeal. Uh, so yeah, adding yeah. modern references to that. I, I could see why that is not appealing. I didn't get far enough to recognize any, but. Yeah, and it's not it's it's not totally overbearing. You 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 can put it aside, but it happens just often enough. Or it or it has that other thing where a lot of games think they're funny and they're not, and <laughs> yeah. they will go for the one liner joke. But what they don't realize is that like one liner self referential jokes. Each time you do that, each time you sort of break the fourth wall, you do leave a slight crack on it, right? You do leave a slight fingerprint on it. So is it worth it? Is it funny enough for you to do this? Yeah, you- because eventually you're going to be making what is happening beyond that fourth wall. What what is happening in the, you know on the stage? You're going to like draw like heightened attention to the artifice of it and the meaninglessness of it. And I think that is a place where a lot of games and Planetfall is far from the worst defender, right? This is, uh, you know, I wrote a thing about this at Waypoint ages ago about like how open world games that Ubisoft makes has all these fucking like punch up style gags uh thrown yeah. into them that eventually just by their sheer weight and number and general lack of like genuine wit 
begin detracting from anything that might recommend the setting or what it's trying to say about the world. Yeah, I, I hate I that agree. stuff passionately, actually. <laughs> I mean, like, I grew up on Sierra Adventure games, right? Like, there's not that much of a difference between the incessant Monty Python references there and what's going on here, and they were kind of grading back then, even when I yeah. was, you know, a 12-year-old super into Monty Python, so... Well, and it's it's never like, oh, I have something interesting to say about Monty Python. It's always like, right. hey... Have you seen Monty Python? <laughs> Remember that line from Monty Python? All right, moving on. Yeah, yeah. You know who didn't do that shit, Rowan? Jane Jensen. True. Jane Jensen was like, no, this shit's for real. And I was like, damn right. This is going to age tremendously well because of this. Yes, the <laughs> other aspects maybe a little bit less, but yeah. there is nothing gone wrong with Gabriel Knight 2. Uh in terms of references. <laughs> <laughs> the video and the acting, you know, fantastic. Uh, but the references, even better. Just ageless, ageless. Look, <laughs> Wagner is always hot with the kids. Yes. A Wagner-themed <laughs> adventure game? What? I must play it. It posits, a, it posits a heretofore unseen part of the ring cycle? Damn right it does. Okay, I'm, I'm like, unironically interested in this now. <laughs> Yo, TJ, I, you didn't know this? Gabriel, no, no, Gabriel Light 2 Gabriel is... Night games. Gabriel Light 2 is like a legit classic game, but Shit. it is extremely 1996. Oh yeah. my god. But TJ, you extremely have to play it. Like, if that okay. is your shit, like, you gotta get it. It's about yeah. the unification of Germany under Bismarck and werewolves okay. and uh, oh, Wagner yeah. and, uh, queer <laughs> and queerness. <laughs> Speaking uh, my language, you're speaking like all of my languages oh, right now. So, also one of my favorite adventure game puzzles of all time when you have to like splice all your tapes together. Oh my god, yeah, oh, and, that, yes. and that shows up early. TJ, like, yeah, TJ, it records every every dialogue that you have in the game is recorded on tape because you're an author. Shockingly early, they make you do something with that. Um, <laughs> okay, it's 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 quite something. Okay, uh, okay. All right, now we are, now we are getting back into a uh, '90s throwback show, uh, which means it's time to wrap this up before Rowan makes us go three more hours. All right, uh, it's true. Anything? Any last things about 2019? Speak now, forever hold your peace. It was a deluge of games. There's a lot of games we didn't even talk about. Um, the the C tier of video games is having. Not a a golden age, but a prosperous one. There are a ton of games that are okay. If you really like to play okay games, <laughs> go for it. Get wild. Dig in. You can That's buy actually... three okay games for the price of one Total War Three Kingdoms, and that might be your jam. If you're going to get bored with Three Kingdoms before you're done with it, get out there and start looking for some of these B-tier games, C-tier games, right? Like... Dawn of Man happened this year. Rise of Im Industry, Field of Glory Empires, Little Big Workshop. I'm trying to think about this Automation Empire, The Colonists. Uh, that that fucking uh, the game with the the apes that TJ's been playing. The game with the apes that TJ's been <laughs> oh, playing. Uh, That's ancestors. actually just an illegal thing, and the police are coming to his house <laughs> <laughs> as we speak. I've just called them. Uh, am I getting swatted? Am I being swatted live yeah, on Three MA? No, you're no. just going to real prison. T TJ's Ape mm -hmm. Fight Club. Uh, For the game you play with the Yeah, uh-huh. 
Yeah. Uh, what what was that called? Ancestors. Uh, ancestors. Yes. It is which. I, I almost brought it up because I don't want to go much longer, but it is in some interesting ways kind of a strategy game because uh, you manage a tribe of pre-human apes and you can eventually give them orders once you level up your communication enough um, and do some minor kind of tactical stuff with it, which is interesting. Uh, ended up making my top five of the year, uh, which I have gathered is partly because it's been heavily patched since the build that most of the reviewers played um yeah that's definitely one i would i would recommend everybody check out all right uh well that will do it for this week and this year uh we'll be back i think next week with more strategy discussion uh if we've done this all right there shouldn't be too much of a disruption uh while we all go on vacation but we don't always do things entirely right and sometimes shit happens. Uh, so uh, we we hope you've had a wonderful holiday, and we thank you for listening uh, throughout this year. And we hope you'll stick with us next year as we explore more of this del- deluge of uh, C tier games that John is John is telling us about. I can't wait to yes. uh, schedule more shows on those and uh, have him attend at least half of them. Uh, (laughs) but you can guarantee that the half i don't attend either rob will have forgotten or i'll have gotten a very good nap tj i'm super sorry about uh totally forgetting which time what time i scheduled zoo uh, Zoo tycoon for that was you know that that's on me oh Uh, it's honestly if if only i'd been there i could have been like bruno (laughs) silence TJ's got something to say, and you need to You're listen. You're mad that you have this to place power good. stations in a management game? Really? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that, that line of tech has, has nothing valid. TJ is completely right. He loves this game so much, he hasn't put that much time into it uh, <laughs> and doesn't know when he'll be able to. Uh, but, but surely that has nothing to do with the micromanagement of basic infrastructure uh, that is between you and the cool shit you want to build. Oh man, the burnout show when we do it is going to be awesome. <laughs> oh, it's it's coming. It's on the horizon. <laughs> All right, uh, this episode was produced by, produced by Keith Carberry. Three Moves Ahead is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. You can tell I need to wrap up for the night because I am having a hard time talking at this point. Uh, finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, that also has further information about our super secret Discord server, where we occasionally talk about strategy games, though of late it's mostly about different Civil War commanders. That's- and pizza. Deep dish pizza represent. Yeah, you know, I didn't even want to get into it. Cause- you think McClellan <laughs> would like deep dish? No, he would have boring uh, pedestrian <laughs> opinions about Deep Dish and uh, be convinced they're original. Anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, for John, for Rowan, for TJ, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.